BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show is just moments away. But before we get into that, we got to thank the following unions again for jumping on board and sponsoring this program. Unions like the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8. The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, are sponsors of this program as well as the Illinois Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. The International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, actually. Thank you to those unions for jumping on board and sponsoring this show. And, of course, today's Ben Jarofsky Show for Wednesday, February 12th. Hour number two is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Cue the temporary dramatic intro. It is Wednesday, February 12th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, we still got Monroe Anderson in studio, and we welcome pollster Dan Cohen. Yeah. <laughs> And now your host, can you feel the tension? <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Yes, listeners, I know I shouldn't break the wall, but uh, I, I left, it's my fault. I left D's computer at my house, so all that great music that he usually plays, we don't have. It's just got one song. Got and it's one this. song. And the alternatives have Monroe sing his favorite Stevie Wonder songs, and I'm the only one who wants him to do that, so uh, we'll just go with the... By the way, Jeanette Taylor on the show, Alder Woman Jeanette Taylor Monroe, she was on the show Friday. She sang live in front of that microphone where young Dan Cohen is sitting right now, a Stevie Wonder song. How about that? So are you ready to step up and sing a song? Uh, 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 no. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, Dan Cohen uh, joins us, the discussion. Uh, Dan Cohen is a pollster, and you're a very popular guy, Dan. Uh, I've been getting texts from various people that say, you got Dan Cohen coming on the show? All right. Uh, and uh, Joanna, shout out to you. And Carlos, shout out to you. Both texting me. Uh, so before we uh, take the deep dive and talk about all the political issues today, New Hampshire, Iowa, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Mayor uh, Mayor Pete, Mayor Bloomberg, uh, Joe Biden's black voters, where they go, all those issues uh, that are uh, Democrats are facing right now. Tell folks a little bit about yourself. Uh, who have you pulled for your, uh, and generally, you know, what uh, your background in politics is? Yeah, uh, so I have, uh, for the last 20 years, uh, starting in Massachusetts, and the last uh, 10 years been back and forth between Massachusetts and the Chicago area. Um, polling for a, a lot of aldermanic uh, state legislative races, um, you know, again, mostly in the Northeast um, and in Chicago. Um, and mostly down ballot legislative once in a while, the, you know, congressional or statewide mm -hmm. or the countywide. I got you. So mostly and you're Democrat. Yes. Okay. You work for the Democrats. Uh, before uh, we end this conversation, I'm going to try to ask, I'm going to trot out my theory about voters lying to pollsters. I'm not going to do it now. Just trying to make sure I don't forget this. My, my position uh, on pollsters when it comes to Donald Trump, I've said this to Monroe many times. 
White voters lie to pollsters when they say uh, they aren't going to vote for him uh, because they're embarrassed to admit that they're voting for him. And then black voters, particularly black men, lie to pollsters when they say they are going to vote for him. Not quite sure what psychological games are going on there. I'm going to leave that one alone. I'm not a psychiatrist, but that's my opinion. So that you always, in my opinion, you have an inflated number of Black people who claim that they're voting for Donald John Trump, which is not borne out by anything, uh, any actual vote tallies. And then you have a deflated, is that the right word? Whatever, number of white voters who are uh, claiming they're going to vote for Donald Trump. And lo and behold, on Election Day, there's this shock. Oh, my God, I thought they were going to vote for him. So that's my uh, position. Uh, I'll get you warmed up a little bit before I get you to address okay. on that one, the lying that goes on to pollsters and how pollsters uh, deal with that. Uh, let's start with New Hampshire. General thoughts on New Hampshire. Bernie Sanders was victorious. Pete Buttigieg uh, second. Amy Klobuchar third. What's your general thoughts about it? I mean, I, I think that the consensus is right on this, that it's about Amy Klobuchar. Um, she, days before, was polling in the, in the mid-single digits, and had a really strong third place finish. Uh, the gap between her and then Warren and Biden uh, down below was very substantial. Uh, she wasn't expected to be a top tier candidate, and now she absolutely is. And what what fueled that uh, spike? The debate. I mean, there's. Um, there was an. So the thing about the electorate that is different from many electorates mm-hmm. is it was incredibly fluid. There were a lot of people who like any number of candidates and they just take their time. Some of them just make their final decision when they're you know, in the ballot box. Um, so you had a whole bunch of people trying to figure out what was going on and to assist them, you had a debate three days before the election. That, mm-hmm. that is- Friday's debate. Yeah, Friday's debate. Mm-hmm. And Klobuchar did something that she hadn't done before. Prior to that, I always felt that Klobuchar did the best job making the moderate case, but she never made the case for herself. And the way that she went over that hump to finally transform from just making the moderate case for for November viability in particular, she made the case for herself by calling out Bernie Sanders in a way that most people were trying not to do so fundamentally. And she came out and the question came up, if you guys remember, um, is anyone worried about having someone who calls himself a socialist? Yes. And Democratic socialist, but yeah. whatever. Okay. Sure. No, yeah. of course. Yeah. And she raised her hand mm-hmm. and in particular, you know, made the point that, and again, I mean, this is, she, think of who her audience is. Her audience are moderates who aren't sure who can really carry that water to the finish line. Yeah. And she said, you know, it's absurd that no one's bringing this up. Of course, it's a bad thing to do. I'm concerned. So she set herself as the person who, if you have concerns about the Democratic Socialist label, about Bernie Sanders for whatever reason, that she is the person who will be your champion. Prior to that, Buttigieg off of Iowa had been surging himself. He had kind of a rough debate. And one of the other things that happened that I think was a really smart move on Klobuchar's uh, part uh, she attacked him for denigrating Washington, D.C. experience. Yes. And that spoke directly to, like, that hit him on a supposed strength. He was the person who valued everyone. And suddenly she called him out for being divisive and denigrating other people. And that's a, that's a tough thing if you're surging on the idea that 
it's all about civility and you know we all love each other and we're all going to be unified then she's like what are you talking about you're denigrating the majority of the people on the stage that's a really bad look so she was able to get herself noticed as the uh counterpoint to bernie sanders and cut down the person who had been making those gains mm -hmm. uh and in doing so she ensured that bernie sanders would come in first place because otherwise Buttigieg was on the way to move above him so she took votes that would otherwise have gone to Buttigieg yep. and enabled Bernie to win. Yeah. So Bernie should be sending her flowers today. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's one of the, the, the ironies of these complicated fields that, you know, from the Sanders perspective, he's benefiting from a lot of moderate candidates splitting the vote. So he gets to say, I am the front runner. Right. If, if you if you add up her 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 votes and Buttigieg and and um um biden it's 60 percent or something like that so it's a centrist vote uh right. all right and the and uh, big daddy centrist was not in the race and that's michael bloomberg we'll get to big daddy in a little while all right so are you saying dan cohen that there's an equivalency to what i was just explaining and let me follow me in this monroe this is going to go to you too i just laid out my theory about white voters lying to pollsters about Donald Trump. They don't want to admit that they're going to vote for Trump, so they lie to pollsters. Not all of them, but some of them, enough to have these surprises when the final results are in. Uh, are you saying there's something equivalent going in the Democratic, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Democratic primary where voters are generally ashamed to admit they have a bias against a Democratic socialist? And so they mislead pollsters because they don't want to admit that, yeah, I'm troubled by the word socialism. Do you think that's going on? I, I think that the, the the polling has actually, I think the voters have done a perfectly good job explaining what their concern is. And, and very honestly, they are concerned about viability. And so you have, you look at the, the Bernie Sanders platform. It's enormously popular among the Democratic uh, primary electorate. And yet... I think it was 62% of people said it was more important for them to vote for who is viable. And so, <clears throat> pardon me, if you have the centrist candidates putting forth a narrative, and this, this is a pretty important dynamic with the whole field, like we don't know which kind of candidate is the best one. There's competing theories, but the moderate candidates' theories that they're putting forward are resonating more. So you have people who feel very good about Bernie Sanders. You have people who very, feel very good about Elizabeth Warren who despite her poor finish is still very popular among Democrats, but they are voting more for the people they feel will be more viable uh, against Donald Trump. Right, that's why the black vote is shifting to Bloomberg. Mm -hmm. uh, from, uh, from Biden. From Biden. Yep. Okay, we'll get into the black vote. That's a fascinating, uh, gets into the whole issue of whether uh, Bernie is too to the left for black voters, a theory that has been uh, uh, established by many people in the show, including David Seaton. I disagree with that theory, uh, but we'll get into that one. I have to uh, ask you a question about the competing theories. All right. Uh, the competing theories that you just laid out. One, uh, Bernie's too lefty. He can't win. And uh, But two, 
the other the competing theory put out by the Bernie people is that mainstream Democrats uh, have lost their allure uh, in uh, to voters in the age of Trump, and that if you want to win, you have to have a uh, a, a candidate with a resounding populist appeal like Bernie to get new voters to come to the polls, uh, to get new voters to register uh, and show up. Uh, and that there's those are two competing theories about electability. What's your position on that, Dan Cohen? I don't think that either one of those uh, theories is uh, it really captures the complicated dynamics of that kind of race. I think that they might work as uh, campaign tactics. If you have to convince your base not to abandon you because they're concerned about viability, you give them a simple theory of whatever sort and they go, oh, yeah, OK, cool. But in terms of the different dynamics that actually happen, first of all, there's not just an ideological spectrum. There's all kinds of things that people consider. Do they feel that they trust the person or not? There's a spectrum about that. You know, we tend not to vote for people who would be normally considered Washington, D.C. insiders. We have a whole modern history. The less D.C. person wins pretty much every presidential you know, November election. So... We have to look beyond just that ideological spectrum and and be willing to think about more complicated dynamics in place to tackle that. Now, that's something that might not make very sexy rhetoric for a candidate on the campaign trail, except if 62% of the primary voters are saying, but that's my number one concern, then we have to have a more sophisticated conversation about it. Less DC voter. I hadn't thought about that. I cannot remember the last D.C.-centered uh, candidate who was elected president. Uh, George Bush against Mike Dukakis. That's the exception. Very good. That's correct. <laughs> I, was, I was actually going to go back in time. Uh, let's see. I was going to go back in time to Lyndon Baines Johnson. <laughs> I was thinking 1964 against Barry Goldwater. But uh, you're right. George Bush... Uh, was yeah, a creature. He, yeah, he had the best resume in Washington. He had the best resume in Washington. And Dukakis was a uh, a governor. We had uh, Delmarie Cobb in the studio uh, last week. Uh, Monroe, you'll get a kick out of this one. And she, Delmarie Cobb, is a political strategist here in the city of Chicago, Dan Cohen. Been around, knows the game. And uh, she was talking, she was Jesse Jackson's press secretary back in 1988. And she told a story about how in 1988, she was trying to contrast, she's a big Hillary fan, Dan. She was trying to contrast uh, Jesse's attitude uh, toward the, the nominee and uh, Bernie Sanders. She said that in 88, that Jesse Jackson's uh, supporters were begging him to stay in uh, in the race and not to endorse Dukakis and to, to, to try to force Dukakis to be the vice president, uh, to name him as VP, and that Jesse backed off and supported Dukakis without the guarantee that they'd be a VP. And then she said, in her humble opinion, had uh, Dukakis selected as Jesse, Jesse Lewis Jackson as uh, his running mate, he would have been victorious. What do you think of that, Monroe? Do you think he would have been victorious? No. <laughs> Dan, you weren't even around. You were, you're too young. But do, what do you think about no, that? There are, there are Jesse haters out there today. You know, and he hasn't even been that active. Yeah. And there are people who, who feel about Jesse like many of us feel about Trump. And so, no. Yeah. So I was around. That was the first presidential election that I voted in. Okay. Um, I don't, I don't remember off the top of my head what the African-American turnout was relative to other races at that point. I mean, I think that certainly, 
you know, it, it, that race stands out to me because you had someone who normally is the kind of candidate who does well against D.C. establishment folks, um, but it didn't happen, and it's uniquely the exception over many, many decades. Um, I think that even at that time, though, uh, you know, you, you had far fewer uh, mediums through which people received their election information. There were, it was much easier for the political operatives to have very standard models that, that change very little. So uh, it, even you know, using that to think about how to approach this election, I, I don't think it's helpful. Yeah, and the other thing is Jesse would have overshadowed Dukakis big time. Oh my goodness. As a personality. And he would have upstaged him because yeah. that's Jesse's nature. No. He can't help himself. Yeah. No, I he <laughs> did Yeah. Uh I, I I think you're right. I think uh as much as in, in retrospect I would have loved to I just love thinking of Jesse Jackson running with Dukakis. What a show that would be. Exactly. Uh, do you remember for 10 tribute points, Dan Cohen, who uh, Mike Dukakis took as his vice presidential candidate? Lloyd Benson. Very good. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, the senator from Texas. Uh, Cohen knows his stuff. And I, I, um, I know, I, I, I knew John Kennedy. Yeah, right. And you know John yeah, you Kennedy. You know John Kennedy. Uh, Benson's great moment in the debate with right. Dan Quayle. Uh, all right, let's talk. Uh, but the interesting thing is, less DC experience works. That's the exact opposite tact that uh, Amy Klobuchar used to her advantage on the debate stage, mm -hmm. where she attacked uh, Buttigieg uh, for being what, insulting yep. to uh, and trivializing the great experience they had. So in, in, in the face of Donald Trump as a president, uh, and he, you know, being an outsider who has just trashed all protocol right. that the president uh, is supposed to hold. Do you think that uh, actually D.C. experience would help a Democrat in this race? I don't think that it would, but the way that the D.C. experience gets described um, can be different for, for different candidates. Um, you know, Barack Obama doesn't break the the model because while he was a u.s senator he beat a much longer serving u.s senator in his election and mm. and in his primary election as well um but he certainly didn't feel like a dc insider he was you know the 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 qualities of a candidate who can bring a message of significant change and reform to the system he wasn't hindered by that in any way uh because of having been uh, a u.s senator um, I think that Klobuchar brought up what she brought up, though, not to make—that wasn't where she made her case. She made her case against Buttigieg and showing the sort of hypocrisy, given, again, his message of, of unity and civility and all that. Mm -hmm. uh, and she, so it was a useful tactic at that moment within the debate. But it's one of the many questions. Are, you know, if we allow Donald Trump to run against someone who seems like— the D.C. establishment, because even though he's president, which you would think would make someone seem like the D.C. establishment, he certainly does not. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just like with the draining the swamp. It's, it's people still regurgitating that, <laughs> that, that he's trained. In the meantime, I, I saw an article where he has had 281 lobbyists in his administration. Unbelievable. Which is just an incredible number. No, you, if you're a, a Donald Trump supporter, and I say this to all my dear MAGA hat-wearing friends out there, you have to be willfully ignorant. You just got to 
be willfully well, ignorant. Well, some of them can't help themselves. Well, they're just I, ignorant. You know. But, but yeah, but there there are a lot of willfully ignorant ones. There's this uh, a comedian who is uh, on Comedy Central. He's on the Trevor Noah show all Clever. the time. Yeah. yeah. He goes and interviews Trump supporters. Yeah. And... <laughs> yeah, no, that's a funny... It yeah. is very funny because the utter inconsistency of what they're saying. Right. Like, they'll, they'll be saying... Like, you gotta... If you study the transcript, uh, you'll see that Trump is innocent. So say, well, have you studied the transcript? Oh, well, no, I haven't looked at the transcript. Well, then how do you know what the transcript says? Well, uh, yeah. I heard reports on it. I heard reports on the transcript. <laughs> And uh, and then they'll say you should be uh, you should have an independent mind about things. Uh, and then he'll say to them, uh, well, but have you studied the transcript? In other words, they don't have an independent mind. You know? So the inconsistency of Trump voters, they just believe in Trump so much. They love Trump so much for who he is, for what he does, for how he plays the game. Uh, Dan Cohen, that they don't care if there's no logic. Well, or consistency. I think it's important when thinking about any group of voters uh, not to. Uh, lump all of them together. There's a substantial number of people that voted for Barack Obama who voted for Donald Trump, uh, a more substantial number who did not vote against him. Um, unlike, say, 2012, where you had a really small number of swing voters between Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, there were a much more substantial number of swing voters in the 2016 election, and it was defined by they didn't like Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. And that's not a usual situation for a, a general election and president. So, um, you know, going back to the idea of the competing theories and, and maybe developing a more complex theory about how to win the election in November, I don't think it's useful to just ignore the fact that there were some people who were comfortable voting for a Democratic candidate who then ended up, you know, many who sat out, but many who ended up voting for Donald Trump and making sure that we don't define every Donald Trump voter by the people who do display that that ignorance and and, and worse. All right, let me sit corrected. I uh, I would say 90% of the Donald Trump voter. I would say, all right, you know what? 80% of the Donald Trump voter. <laughs> Even if it's 90, that's a margin of victory. Explain that, that's a good if point. If 10% of the people that voted for Donald Trump are swing voters that we could get back, we'd win the election. Um, now, I don't think that it's one thing. And, and I think that's, you know, when I look at uh, the, the dynamics of voters and start thinking about, you know, what are the different ingredients where we can move things, some of it is turnout of the base. Some of it is large scale voter registration drives and bringing new people into the process. And some of it might be looking at those swing voters and how many can be moved. And each election is unique and you have to figure out like, what is, you know, how many of each group can you move? There are marginal changes with each of them. Okay, Dan, I'd like to ask you this. Um, what about Bloomberg? <laughs> uh, yeah, let's start with that. <laughs> let's go with Bloomberg, yeah, Let's man. just go with that now. Can, let's go with can, Bloomberg. Can he buy the election? Uh, and, and you know, and 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 I'm not using that as uh, derisively as a lot of people mm -hmm. do. Um, I mean, because he has done things. I mean, it's, uh, he he was mayor of New York right. for 12 years, so I mean, he he has a record to go on and what have you. But he is Johnny Come Lately, mm -hmm. and he is like just going boldly forth into it. An area that nobody else is like. I got the money, and I'm gonna spend it. Right. 
And that's his case to make. Each of the candidates has to make the case why they can win in November. And it's great when you have a simple case. Uh, it's better when you have a simple case that a broader swath of people agree with. I think that's one of the challenges that Bernie Sanders is having right now. Michael Bloomberg has a simple case. I will throw billions of dollars at this thing to win. And a lot of people just say, oh, Makes money wins elections. Yeah. So sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, our rich guy can beat your rich guy. Yeah. Our rich guy really is rich. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly. Uh, yeah. In fact, Bloomberg's make had that in a commercial, or I don't, he got that wise crack off. Like there's two bloom, there's two billionaires be running. If you go against Trump, there'll be two uh, billionaires in a race, and he goes, "Who's the other one?" Exactly. Oh, Bloomberg's oh, yeah, got a million of them. Yeah, exactly. uh, all right. Well, let me throw this one at you, Dan. Uh, right now, uh, when I mention Michael Bloomberg's name uh, to my friends of the Bernie persuasion, and I have many of them, they're like, "No way." You were there last night at the uh, yep. at the bar where we had the show. No way. I'm not voting for him. I'll either. But they never say they're going to vote for Donald John Trump. But the, I'll either leave it blank at the top. I'll vote third party. I'll see you know what my third party options are. But no way am I going to vote for Michael Bloomberg. Now, they're saying that right now it's February. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, how significant do you take that as a threat uh, to Bloomberg's viability uh, come, let's say he is the nominee, come November? Um, I, don't, I don't think it's a useful thing to focus on at this point because someone will eventually be the nominee and a lot of people will be disappointed that that person is the nominee and we will have a process where we remember that Donald Trump is president and there is <laughs> one thing He will remind us. <laughs> he will remind yeah. us. Yeah. So... <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's the most motivating factor right there, irrespective of who the nominee is. Might one nominee or another be more motivation? Sure. Um, But even that is not crystal clear. That's the Bernie Sanders case is I will bring much, you know, many more people into the process. And that's what will put us over the top. And the challenge right now and and I'm, I'm, you know, I, I think that there's a really strong case to make for Bernie Sanders being one of the most viable candidates in the race. Um, oh, but tell us that. Yeah, make yeah, the case. Yeah, tell us that. Make, well, I want to hear the case. I think that Bernie Sanders is a different kind of candidate than we've ever had be viable. Um, you know, I think that there's there can be an exuberance around him for some of his supporters uh, that can put blinders on. Um, I've seen just in the past few days, a lot of people announce Bernie Sanders has surged to first place nationally. Um, with all respect, he surged to first place by the first place person falling below him. So he has struggled. Oh, with that'd be that. Joe Biden. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So he, he has struggled to push that ceiling up much. However, his ceiling was being, you know, called 15, 18%, then it was called 20%, then it, his ceiling has been moving up. Mm-hmm. I think that his, the biggest challenge for him is the nomination because people are skeptical. But, um, you know, people don't trust Washington, D.C. insiders. And even though he's been there so long, he's immune to that. He just does not seem that kind of candidate. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that he has the ability 
to broaden his appeal by clarifying certain things. Some of the scary words, revolution, uh, socialism. You know. Revolution will not be televised. Yeah, it's funny, clarifying revolution. What I meant by revolution was not literally. Uh. But, the, but that's the thing. I mean, I, I think that that was... You know, one of the the challenging things in in defi- for him to define. So uh, four years ago, he started getting mocked for using the term revolution, yeah. and in one of his uh, speeches, he said, "You know, when you think about it, what I'm describing is exactly what the marriage equality movement, you know, not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's how that happened, and that with the 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 women's movement and the suffrage movement and the civil rights movement and." So you're using this term revolution that people don't like, and I think that's because after radical things happen, they don't look radical anymore. So people forget that radical things happen because people go, oh, wait, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Wow. So if he can define yeah. that, I, I think he does it sometimes, he could do it better. I think that would go a long way to get people to go, oh, that's not as scary. Uh, and do you think there's a way he can define his way out of democratic socialism? I... I think that uh, that's a little bit less of uh, a concern, honestly, because he gets to define what his platform is. And at some point, people are going to realize that he's not trying to overthrow capitalism. Right. Well, right. Yeah. And, you know, what I do on Facebook when I'm um, arguing with my ignorant Trump nuts <laughs> is when they talk about socialism, what I do is cut and paste an article listing the 10 happiest countries in the world, and they are all socialist yeah. country. You know, what Trump is doing is using Venezuela yeah. as an example right. of bad socialism, but there's lots of good socialist countries. You pay more taxes or what have you, but you don't have, you don't have to worry about being sick and losing your fortune. I mean, there's all sorts of advantages. In fact, I think it's Denmark where they pay you to go to college. You don't pay to go yeah. to college, but they pay you. No, we have all sorts of socialistic operations in this country, and uh, I'm not allowed to talk sports in this show, but I'm just going to say this weekend the NBA All-Star Game uh, is coming to the city of Chicago. The NBA is a socialistic entity. They prohibit... you. you Nobody, you have to get permission from the people who are in there to get in there, that's number one. And number two, they limit the amount of money anybody can spend on the players. So that if that's not socialism, I don't know what it is, right. but it's, you know, socialism that protects the interests of wealthy people, so it's not considered right. socialism. What is it? I don't it's know what they call tough it. Tough capitalism. Tough capitalism, <laughs> you know. They're looking out yeah. for the fans. Yeah. That's what they always say. Uh, So, yeah, people uh, pick and choose with socialism. All right. Now, I'm going to reverse the question to you, Dan. So we talked about uh, the Bernie people who say, if Bloomberg's a nominee, no way. All right. I'm not going to vote for him. Now let's reverse it. I got a lot of uh, people of the moderate persuasion coming through this studio all the time. Joe Biden supporters, the newly discovered Bloomberg supporters. So suddenly they got Bloomberg tattoos. Uh, tattoos? Yeah, tattoos. Oh, <laughs> I, 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 we even had an Amy Klobuchar supporter, but it's just a matter of time. I think those are just going to be the Joe Biden supporters. Uh, they all, when we're off the mic, they don't say this on mic. They go, oh, I can't stand Bernie Sanders. Can't stand Bernie Sanders supporters. And I read a, the New York Times, their, their, their spokespeople in the New York Tom Friedman just wrote a column yesterday's New York Times. Bernie Sanders will be disaster. He can't win, blah, 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 blah. Let's say Bernie Sanders is the nominee. All these, uh, my friends of the moderate persuasion, are they going to pull, you know what I mean? Are they just going to? 
shut up and go along the same way uh, you know we expect the Bernie supporters to do the same for uh, Bloomberg? Um, it's difficult to say. I mean, I, I will say that there's been very, a very clearly weaponized narrative that Bernie Sanders is horrible by a lot of establishment Democratic folks. Um, it's and and that becomes reality for people. So the 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 vitriol is absurd um, when you have someone who's basically been pushing for an agenda that is a popular agenda <laughs> for decades. He's been consistent. He's you know you watch uh, films of him from decades ago. He's talking about the same issues. The rest of the Democratic Party has sort of been catching up to him. And all of a sudden, he's the devil incarnate. It's a little bit absurd. Um, but in the same way that I you know, brought up with the other side, someone will become the nominee. If it is Bernie Sanders, then those folks are going to have to take seriously. There is a choice between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump, and they'll act accordingly. You know, it'll be our job to get them not to defect. Um, we're certainly not going to, you know, on either side, whether it's like uh, folks on the left or moderate folks concerned about the nominee, mm -hmm. um, we're not going to shame them into uh, coming on board and making sure that we can support Donald Trump. We're going to have to, you know, reach out to them and offer them a very good reason. And I think that that is not that difficult to do with Bernie Sanders once you get past the irrationality uh, around the hatred toward him. Let's uh, let's go to the black vote. For no, right, let's go okay. to the black yeah. vote. Yeah, let's, that's uh, everything. That, there was some some um, politician, black politician, on. I saw getting interviewed, and he says um, that just like Trump could shoot somebody of Fifth Avenue and the Trump supporters would still vote for him, yeah. he said Trump could heal somebody of Fifth Avenue and the black voters would still vote against him. <laughs> I thought that was a great lie. Who said that? I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, <laughs> but why would, I've said this already, Monroe, today, why would any black voter vote for Donald Trump, except for, you know, like Kanye or something, or, uh, uh, you know, and, I mean. And, well, the, the nuts and the self-haters. Yeah. Yeah. The Monroe Anderson said that. I didn't say that, but Monroe <laughs> Anderson said, but it, yeah. I mean, Donald Trump denigrates black people almost every freaking day. And so why would a black voter vote for him? I, I don't understand why a Jewish voter would vote for him after what he said down in Miami or wherever it was to a room full of, uh, 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 his Jewish supporters. So, but he does it. He just did that once with the Jewish supporters. He denigrates black people, Monroe. I would say once a week at least. You know what I mean? He's making fun of Maxine Waters, right. Colin Kaepernick. Right. Go down the list. I mean, so why would a black person vote for him? The thing that puzzles me is um, he's getting some amount of black men. Not a huge number, but he's getting some. Don't don't do, even do uh, this. That, now yeah. we're gonna go do to the posters. See? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not here. Now let's now let's ask the question. Yeah. My uh, I will I, my position. I had this debate just uh, Friday yeah. uh, with Stacey Davis Gates, uh, Stacey Davis Gates, and uh, Jeanette Taylor in the studio. And the black men lie to posters when they say they're supporting Donald Trump, and that if you actually look at the voting results, real votes, you see no evidence whatsoever 
that there was any significant number of black men who voted for Donald Trump. If you take a look at the black wards of Chicago, which are overwhelmingly black, so you know it's not a white voter in there, Donald Trump is lucky to get 1.5, 1.4, 1.6, 1.7% of the vote. I don't care. There's no way he could have gotten upwards of 10% of the black male vote with a turnout of 1.7. So my conclusion is that black men lie to pollsters when it comes to Donald Trump. What's your thoughts, Dan Cohen? Um, I don't see any evidence that any demographic group is uh, more or less dishonest. Um, You have to look at, number one, people change their minds. Uh, Polls that are done well before an election People can uh, express frustration about something and then have time to, to think about it and take a look. I mean, it's general elections are obviously different from primaries, but you look at the polling from two days before New Hampshire versus the results, mm. you had very substantial changes. That wasn't the polling being wrong, actually. That was people in the process of making up their minds, which they did for the 48 hours from the end of the last polls through the end of uh, the polls being open. So people can express different things. Um, I don't know, I, you know, the polls in 2016 on balance were actually pretty accurate. There were uh, some places where, some states that they were more off than others, but you know, Hillary Clinton had a lead of a few percent, which is almost what she ended up with um, mm-hmm. popular vote wise. Um, but then the last thing I'll say is look, Polling is imperfect, just like any other way that we try to analyze election trends. And so you have to be mindful, as a pollster, I was mindful of, okay, if there is some error that we have beyond just statistical error, where might it come from? What might we not be seeing? And then you ask, is there a way to capture that? How are you you, um, polling the millennials with the cell phones? That must be difficult. It's yeah, polling is a lot more expensive right now for um, because the cell phones you have to dial individually. Um, it's so that the accuracy. There's no indication that there's a substantial uh, reduction in accuracy, but uh, it's certainly more expensive uh, to do phone polling, which is a lot of why a lot of people have been looking at uh, text message um, methodologies and online methods and. Some of those are very promising, but it, it's, it's kind of new in the field, so it, it takes a while to assess. Um, if you look at, you know, it's great now because you can go online and look at any poll aggregator and see the list of every poll that was done and what kind of methodology, and you can see just eyeballing it, um, depending on methodology, you'll get certain candidates doing, you know, consistently doing better or, or worse, and then you can kind of reverse engineer who are the demographics that they do best with. Um, so, you know, like the Economist poll, uh, Elizabeth Warren was always outperforming the other polls in the Economist, or mm. the Emerson poll always had Bernie Sanders overperforming. And, and so you can look into the methodology, but, you know, there, it's always imperfect because you can, you can poll any group of whatever, you know, 400, 500 individuals, if they are not the people ultimately who are gonna show up and vote and you got that part wrong and you're screening incorrectly, it's gonna be inaccurate. Mm. I, I, it, let me ask me this really quickly. The Gallup poll that has Trump at 49 now, do you think that's an outlier or do you believe it? Um, I would have to look back at um, some history on this, but Gallup has not been really good at national uh, political um, polling. I mean, you can look at 
you know, there's uh, things like 538 do a lot of uh, pollster ratings and stuff where you can just look at the, uh, um, you know, the, the history of it. But it, you know, we're going to have a lot of different polls that suggest many different uh, realities in, in front of us. And that's also one of, you know, when you think about the complex models of how you actually win these elections, any one of them could be correct. Where there, There's no honest, exact way to say Donald Trump has X support or X favorability. Um, you know, you that's why you want to look at as much polling as possible. Uh, you want to look at the movement just as much as you're trying to predict. There's no prize for predicting the outcome, but there's a prize for finding the best way to increase your standing. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the Gallup poll just, um, if I believe that, um, though it's, it's usually adults that they uh, poll, right? Not... Um, I think, yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. So that's another thing to... Yeah, but they do it daily. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually adults that they poll, is that what you said? I believe for Gallup, um, but I would, have to, I would have to double check. What, um, uh, excuse my ignorance, but what do you mean by adults? I mean, isn't everybody... Oh, so uh, adults uh, is anyone over 18. Um, in fact, uh, could even mean um, ineligible voters if you're just looking for how old someone is. Um, then there's registered voters, which is going to give you a smaller group, mm -hmm. uh, or likely voters, which you can get either from voting history or for these big races um, from screen questions. Mm -hmm. and, and that's kind of an art more than a science itself, too, because you ask someone if they're going to vote, they'll usually overstate their likelihood of voting. But, then, but you can also ask them other questions, which you know from history. You know, do they know when the election is? Yeah. You know, do they you know like other? <laughs> yeah. Oh, the bar is low on these questions. No, no, but, so, but you know, who is the president? <laughs> uh. Hey, that's no, but you. So they'll they'll yeah. do the 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 very good polls that screen that way will do you know seven eight nine different questions and say well we know from history, people who got you know six of them right did end up voting. Could you yeah. imagine if they did polls based on things like, uh, all right. Who was Mike Dukakis's running mate in 1988? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> who, who is Mike Dukakis? Yeah, who is Mike Dukakis? That's a good point. Uh, who is uh, George Bush's running mate? I can't believe I still remember Dan Quayle. All right. Uh, Bloomberg's impact. This is what we were all talking about. As soon as the show was over, uh, last night we had a show uh, in a bar. Uh, we were a bunch of political junkies. As soon as it was, well, we were talking about it during the show. We talked about it after the show. Yeah. Uh, Monroe and I talk about this all the time. Monroe was suggesting uh, before you got here that uh, the black vote will move from Biden to Bloomberg. 20% already has. Yeah. Already. Yeah. Uh, yes. According to a poll. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, so... Your thought about Bloomberg's impact? I think that I think that Bloomberg ends Joe Biden's campaign. Full stop. Yeah. Um, people have lost confidence, and the only hope that Biden had to continue was to hold on to his strong support among African American voters. But Bloomberg has cut into that. I think that would have been a little bit more challenging for Klobuchar or Buttigieg, but Bloomberg's able to do it, and it's really difficult to see how Biden uh, sustains a, a sense of viability. Um, declining both in the white and African-American communities. Wow. All right. What about his impact on uh, Buttigieg? I think uh, Buttigieg, and, and I mean, now we have to include uh, Klobuchar in the same category, just huge question marks there. You know, it, the way that you campaign in Iowa and New Hampshire 
is a lot different from how you make the case to many millions of people in much bigger states that come a lot faster. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Amy's going to have trouble because you got uh, Super Tuesday coming up, and you need a truckload of money to deal with all those states at once. And you can't jump on a plane and go to all of them. So you have to be on the airwaves and on the internet. And she doesn't have the dough. Yeah. Uh, Mayor Pete has it, and uh, Bernie has it. See, here's the deal. Now, I don't know if the polls can reflect this. I always say this. I've been saying this for a week, Monroe. Yes. If I'm a centrist voter, it's no contest. There's not a dime's worth of difference between Klobuchar, Bloomberg, Buddha judge Biden on all the positions. I'm going with the guy with the money. If I'm a centrist voter, if you're a centrist voters, basically don't rock the boat too much. Just put a candidate up who's not Donald John Trump. Uh, just talk about how we can have civility back in government. We're not going to be tweeting out all the time. You know, uh, I'm not going to get rid of uh, pre-existing conditions. Okay, this seems to be the world for centrist voters. Oh, be, right. We're not going to make promises that we can't keep, even though they make promises all the time that they can't keep. Oh, yeah, yeah, you may not know this, but the culinary uh, union. In, in Vegas, in Nevada, is uh, sending out letters on Bernie saying that if you vote for him, you're going to lose your health care. Because they wow, have man, very, they good. fought, because they fought very long and hard to get a very good health care. They're the um, only union in the world that's making that as an issue because everybody knows that uh, health care through a business, through your employer, varies from, con- from contract to contract if you're lucky to have a contract or varies from job to job if your employer's still in business. So any union that's going around saying, oh, we would rather have, uh, you, we believe our members should rather give their wages to the insurance company as opposed to keeping their wages for themselves is not really looking out for the best interests of its workers. And that's just my humble opinion right. as a guy who's in two unions. All right. Now, I think that was one of the most disingenuous attacks on Medicare for All that came up through the campaign. The, the idea that uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren are trying to take away your, your health care. It's, it's insur- people are not in love with their insurance. They they want to have good health care and have access to it and not go broke because of it. Yeah, it's that simple. Yeah, uh, yeah. I that one uh, really. Uh, I have a hard time with that one. All right. Uh, so black voters and Bloomberg. Monroe uh, raised this topic earlier. Let's get a little deeper. Uh, the the story broke yesterday. We were talking about it at the bar uh, of the uh, stop and uh, frisk tape with Bloomberg. Uh, some outrageous comments that Bloomberg made. Was it 2015, Monroe? I think yeah. it was 2015. Yeah. Uh, on, on a radio show. Or something. A radio show. Uh, how much of an apology tour does he have to go on? Rive doubling what J. I say he has to triple what J.B. Pritzker did, at least. Uh, it worked for Pritzker, right? Enough yeah, apologies. Right. Were, uh, your sense of how black voters, how forgiving will black voters be? We'll start with you, Monroe. See, my, my theory is that... Um, in order for Bloomberg to bring young blacks who are with Bernie right now uh, over, he's going to have to come up with a program, an actual program uh, that says he's going to have to pull on Elizabeth Moore and say, I got a program for that where uh, police will be trained not to do it. Um, they would be trained how to to address young black men, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But along those lines, how do you see? No, it? I, I mean I think that that's uh, I, I I agree completely. Um, what I have always seen is there's 
a substantial difference in um, in policy attitudes and other attitudes based on age um, within the African American community and the younger activist folks. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's a that's a big deal. That's a you know you're disqualified if that's you know and that's not just African American young activists. There's a lot of uh, you know progressive white activists as well who will look at something like that as disqualifying immediately. Uh, it, I have seen it get more complicated. Uh, if you think back, I mean, here, um, you know, why the issue about uh, when Chuy Garcia was the, was running for mayor against Rahm Emanuel and the first, uh, the, um, the first commercial that he aired was about the thousand new cops. Yeah. And there was such a disparity between his activist base uh, who had a lot of questions about whether that was a, yeah. a smart thing. At, in the polling, though, the, a, a lot of older African-Americans, older Latinos, thought that that was great. Yeah. No, so I, it's, yeah, the way that that right. plays is very interesting. And then the standard, again, back to conventional wisdom, uh, the older you are, the more likely you are to vote. So who really cares about young people? That's conventional wisdom, Monroe. I'm just yeah, throwing that out Younger there. people are, are voting more nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost doubled, I think, right? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, see, uh, that's why I say people are quick, too quick to underestimate Bernie, because he's got real troops, he's got real yeah. uh, people with strong allegiance, uh, and they're going to go, they come to the show, they've already knocking on doors in Iowa, they'll go out to Wisconsin, they'll go out to Michigan, these swing states, uh, Dan, and I think it's really... the the Democrats do a disservice to themselves to just underestimate that and just, you know, go to conventional wisdom. Oh, he's a socialist. He can't win. Right. And, and it, you know, it's kind of cynical, man. You know what I mean? We always tell people, oh, register, believe in the system, go vote, da-da-da. Then when people actually do it, they go, well, you can't win. One word, McGovern. Oh, man, okay, we're not even going to go there. That's, I think, that, Dan, that's old people talking. Me, Monroe and I are from a different generation than you, right? No, I, I think that, uh, you know, there has not recently been, well, I, I shouldn't even say recently, uh, you know, Barack Obama in 2008 had a very large, passionate, active, and diverse base who were willing to do the work for him, and it paid off, and he became president. And Bernie Sanders' base, despite all of the, you know, other differences between the two of them, that's what Bernie Sanders' activist base looks like. He, he has an incredibly diverse among and any way you want to you know spread out the but yeah but that means. right now it's much smaller than right. Obama's right yeah well He's, you can't compare what was basically I think a, a, a two-person race to a crowded field like this yeah I mean that's like you know so a lot of people were saying wow Bernie Sanders broke 50 percent in New Hampshire last time and this time he only got oh, 25 yeah, 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 yeah. it's like okay in fairness a whole bunch of candidates yes that's Absolutely true. Um, all right, uh, last question before we break for the day, and uh, this is something that came up last night. I, I don't know, Dan, if you were the one who said it, but uh, I can't remember who said it. Brokered convention. Huh. Uh, the um, wow. There's even I, as old as I am, have never lived to a brokered convention. Uh, do you think there's going to be a brokered convention, Dan? I think that there's a really good chance that there's going to be a brokered convention. Um, one of the um, interesting things that happened yesterday, um, when um, 
the Warren campaign seemed to know that it was going to have a low showing, and they they released a very comprehensive thing to their uh, you know campaign supporters and volunteers that laid out this case mm -hmm. that they're in it for the long game and they have the resources to continue. Um, but the interesting thing about it was, well, that's an effective uh, reminder for folks if her play is for a brokered convention. Uh, when she talks about unifying the party, right, which is quite different from unifying the country, which is what you know, Klobuchar, Buttigieg, and other people talk about. When she talks about unifying, that seems to send a signal that her play is stay in long enough for brokered convention. Uh -huh. uh, but at this point, it's you know it's early to tell. Except it, there's no special reason that any one of at least the top five and maybe more stay kind of viable through Super Tuesday. And if they split up states, like that, pr that practically guarantees a broker yeah. convention right there. Uh, Monroe, your thoughts? Broker convention? No, you know, I don't think so. You don't so. see it? Yeah, I don't see the it. The closest uh, in my lifetime that I'm thinking about it, and this is before your uh, time, Dan, but Monroe, you'll remember the 68. Bobby Kennedy was killed in June of 68 in California after the California primary he won. My guess, we could have been heading toward a broker convention uh, in 68 because I'm not sure right. uh, Humphrey would have had the ability to defeat Bobby Kennedy. I'm not sure Bobby Kennedy would have had to defeat uh, the momentum to beat. But I don't know. That's ancient history. And oh, yeah. And no, I think Bobby would have took it if he, had he lived. I think he would have been the candidate. Well, we will never we know. know. Right, yeah. exactly. I know. Uh, Monroe Anderson, every Wednesday on the show, uh, a great guest has been predicting Donald Trump's downfall since the moment Donald Trump was sworn in office. God bless Monroe <laughs> Anderson. Uh, Dan Cohen's first time out. Man, Joanna and Carlos weren't kidding. You did a great job. Thank you very yep. much. Thanks for having me. For coming on the show. And of course... Well, before we get out of here, we got to read our poll results. Ooh. We had a poll on the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page. Big thanks to everybody who weighed in with their vote. The question that was asked on the Ben Jarofsky Show Facebook page, by the way, you should go like that page, at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show, the question posed, the simple one. Will you vote blue no matter who? That was the question. Okay. We had a lot of great comments. Very smart-minded people here on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Uh, Leela says, more important than ever now. Would you agree with that, Ben? Yes. I vote in blue no matter who. I'm putting it out there. Listen to this clever response. Denise puts, absolutely. <laughs> pretty good. Send her a car. Well, we're not winning it. I'll get the car, all right? If we have a car, I take the bus every day. All right. Finally, our poll results here. 23% will vote blue, will not vote blue no matter who. Yeah. 77% well, will vote blue no matter who. All right. Uh, <laughs> good to know. My listeners are in tune with me on that one. I'm voting blue no matter who. And, you know, I'm going to be moaning and groaning if it's a centrist. I'll be complaining, Dan Cohen, and, oh, God, this guy. But push come to shove, I'll vote blue no matter who. I'm predicting another blue wave. You did predict that last yeah, right, time. Exactly. For he predicted that in 2018. Yeah. yeah. And I'm predicting we're going to get the House, we're going to get the Senate, and we're going to get the White House. Whoa. <laughs> what are you drinking? Can I have some of it? <laughs> and they're all going to get a Mustang. Uh, and they're all going to get a blue Mustang. All right. Uh, Monroe Anderson, we'll, let, we'll leave with that great prediction. Thank you very much. Dan Cohen, thank you very much. And of course, the man to meet the legend.
the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. And as Dan Cohen can tell you, back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. And remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows and Benny J bonus interviews at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. Downloaders, you know we live stream this program, right? It's true. Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites and the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel. When you go on the YouTube channel, you can join us in the live stream chat room. Hey, who knows? We may give you a shout-out and mention your comments if you want your language. Join us on the live stream chat. Join us live. Download us. And thank you for listening.